Well, our meditation this evening is on these words from John, John chapter 1, John's Gospel. And the relevance, of course, of the chapter is really in verse 14, what we're not going to look at tonight. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's description of what's really happening at Christmas when God takes on flesh. But as the chapter begins, it begins with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. You, you can see just by the use of the term, the Word there, that we could describe this as about God's speech. In the beginning, there was God's speech. Obviously, the speech belonged to God. It had been forming in His mind. If, if, you, if you look at it from a human point of view, let's take a human being. Here I am talking to you. Thoughts have been forming in my mind. And uh, once I start speaking, you get to know what's on my mind. The fruit of what I've been thinking about will begin to become clear to you, I hope. Uh, that's down to the clarity with which, with which I speak. But hopefully by the end, you will walk away thinking, well, Liam has said something to me. That, that word that he said, that message that he gave, is his message. It came from him. It was with him as he was contemplating it. And once it was heard, we knew what was on his mind. That's a creaturely, very creaturely human way of approaching this word, the word. Of course, uh, John is not using a creaturely analogy here. What John is doing is drawing from the rich resources of the Scripture, beginning in Genesis, where right at the very beginning, when God is uh, going to create the heavens and the earth, when He's going to create man, uh, humanity as such. We, we hear God thinking to Himself, let us make man in our image. We hear God speaking things into being, let there be light, He says, and there was light. And so the Word is something that you can't really distinguish from God Himself. You can't really take it and put it in a category all of its own or, or remove it from His being, uh, because what God does, says, is part of who He is. It's, it's the action of who He is. The Word speaks, and everything is brought into being. And, and so what we find at the very beginning of this chapter is a a vision of the world, really, and of reality, the creation, uh, not as something random, not as Bertrand Russell famously put it, an accidental collocation of atoms in which people are accidents, and beauty is nothing more than a neurologically hardwired response to particular data, and the world, the universe itself, is a closed system uh, where uh, uh, everything, everything has been, is, is a result of random time plus chance. 
No, here at the very beginning of John's gospel, we're taken to the very beginning of the Bible itself, and we're told that this one, this word, was in the beginning with God, and that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we begin with creation. But what I want to focus on this evening is what comes next. In him was life. The word is life. And there we're taken a step closer to understanding creation and to understanding where we fit in creation. In him was life. So the word is a person. The word has a personal nature, an identity. The word is life. God's self-expression finds its fulfillment ultimately in life, not so much in the, in the rocks and the planets and so on, but the, the final product of God's creative activity was the creation of creatures that had life, the, the living creatures, the animals and the fish and so on, and ultimately at the very top of the tree, humanity itself made in God's image. That's the story we find in Genesis. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God said, and it was so. And then God forms the man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living creature. And so the Word, which is the action of God here, the one in whom was life, is the source of not only the created order in its material sense, but in particular, life itself, animal life, and particularly the life of humanity. He created them, creates humanity from inanimate matter and breathes into it the breath of life. And so when it says in him was life, we're saying that all biological life finds its origin in him as its maker. In him was life. But that's not John's main point. That is part of what he's saying here, but that's not his main point. When he talks about life here, he's talking particularly about spiritual life. He's talking about the life that, that people have, the gift of eternal life, saving life, the life that we enjoy particularly in relationship with God, the opposite of spiritual death now and final condemnation later. This is a life that we do not have by nature, as we'll see. By nature, we don't have this life because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus is noted here not only for the fact that he gives biological life, life, but he gives spiritual life to people. That's what he means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 10, 
that uh, that uh, he is that he is uh, the one in whom there is fullness of life. And John tells us that he's writing his book in order that we might believe, and that by believing, have life in Jesus' name. In other words, it's not only the creation, the material creation of the world, but it's also in this new creation that God is at work giving life to people. And the Word, who will find became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and who is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, He is life in Himself, a supply of life to His creatures and to His people. And this word that is life uh, is expounded later on in the book of John when Jesus says, after raising a man called Lazarus from the dead, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is life that can bring life where there's been death, whether it's physical death, the resurrection of Lazarus, or spiritual death, you and I, as He gives eternal life to those who believe in Him. The Apostle Paul picks this up. In Romans 5, he says, the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. One man's sin back at the beginning, Adam's sin, brought condemnation. But the free gift that follows many trespasses in your life and mine as well as in the world brings justification. Because of one man's disobedience, death reigned through that one man. But the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ, causes us now to reign in life. Life is the key. The Word is life. And then the Word is light. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The same John will say, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Light was the very first thing that God made at creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And He placed lights in the sky to separate the night and the, dark, the, the darkness and the, and the daytime, the, the dark and light. And it's that that enables us, makes it possible for us to live. So, on the fifth and sixth days of creation, God makes animal, animate life to populate the waters and the dry land culminating in His creation of humanity. Now, John says, life was in Him, Jesus, the source of physical, spiritual, eternal life, and the light produces life. Now, what kind of light does the life, the Word, produce? Well, we might say that it gives general knowledge of God. It means that people are able to have the enlightenment to see that in the created order that God has made, He has left His, fing his fingerprints. And if you're CSI inclined, you can look around you and you can see in the 
natural order that God has made that he has left signals to us of his presence. He's been there. We, one, of the, one, atheist, one of the famous atheistic scientists of our day uh, says that one, in a tri- that one in a trillion, trillion chance that our universe could support organic and human life indicates to us, this, these were his words, that the universe knew we were coming. In other words, that everything that's happened in the universe has its fruitfulness in that it makes possible the planet that we are on, the right distance from our star, and with the right potential to make it possible that we as human beings could live here. He's an atheist, very atheistic. And yet, this is what he says. And this is precisely, of course, what people have recognized. In uh, her book, Gilead, Marilyn Robinson has her character, Amos, say that in our everyday world, there is, quote, more beauty than our eyes can bear. Leonard Bernstein once waxed lyrical about Beethoven. He he, He wrote this, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, that's the word. When you get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last one is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant, in that context, then chances are that you're listening to Beethoven. Our boy has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel the finish that something is right with the world. And that is precisely one of the pointers that we have, the fingerprints that God has left of His existence, of the fact that this world was made by Him. St. Augustine spoke of this hint of a desire within ourselves for that which is perfect and that which is love. You have made us for yourself, he said, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He knew because he wrestled with God a long time. He tried everything that was on tap to find satisfaction, and he couldn't find his satisfaction anywhere. So, the language of common grace is here, the language that there is in nature a pointer to God, and God illumines people as they look at nature. But above all, the language here is the language of the new creation. The true light that enlightens everyone turns out to be a person. It's the person who was in the beginning with God, the person who was God, the one who's called the Word because he makes sense of everything. He perfectly reveals God. He brings something out of nothing. He brings order out of chaos. He brings meaning into all of life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is both the life bringer and the light bearer. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He's the one who spoke, or who was spoken, and said, let there be light. 
He is the breath of light. He is the true light that was coming into the world. And you find this kind of theme throughout the Old Testament. The prophets, especially Isaiah, for example, speaks of the coming of the Messiah uh, to the land of the Gentiles, to Galilee. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light upon them who dwell in deep darkness. The light has shone. Or in Isaiah 42, God is speaking here. God incarnate is speaking here, addressing the Uh, him, or God is speaking to God incarnate, addressing the servant of the Lord. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, and to bring prisoners out of the dungeon. In other words, here's spiritual illumination. Here is spiritual enlightenment. Here is spiritual uh, liberation. The servant of the Lord, the Messiah, is tasked with the mission of restoring people to this living relationship with God, turning them back to God. He says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so, in Isaiah 60, we have another reference. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is living upon you, has risen upon you. So, Jesus comes into the world, and with him comes light, the light of understanding, the light of intelligence. People who were blinded by the God of this age are enlightened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we find happening in the ministry of Jesus. As the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you, His glory will be seen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. That has all come because the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in His wings. Now, this tells us something about the plight of men and women today. The plight of men and women today is their spiritual darkness. It's a curse of sin. You see it even happening when Jesus is here. He's going around, and it says that though He'd be done so many mighty works and wonders, they still did not believe in Him so that the word of the prophet might be fulfilled. To whom, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? They could not believe. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. The problem of the world, the problem of our friends and relatives and colleagues is No matter how brilliant they may be at a human level, they are blind and dumb spiritually until a light goes on in their head, until the Holy Spirit works that illumination into them. Paul says, even if our gospel is hidden, 
It is hidden to those who are perishing because the God of this age has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But the wonder of the gospel is that he opens our eyes to see it and gives us faith to believe it. So the word is life, and the life is light, and the light is irrepressible. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's inextinguishable. There's a clear contrast made there between light and darkness. The light shines in the darkness, just as the darkness of the original creation is illuminated when God creates light. He creates light first, by the way, and then He creates the sun and the stars and the moon to manage the light on our behalf. But He creates light as a thing first. And Jesus, as the light, has not been dimmed or extinguished by the surrounding darkness. The Bible says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. When Jesus came into the world, His purity and His truth challenged the darkness. Throughout John's gospel, there is this light-darkness antithesis. Darkness represents positive evil, not just the absence of light, but positive evil, if we can say positive evil. And apart from the light brought by the Messiah, Jesus, the incarnate Word, people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They'd rather not think that there is a God. They'd rather not believe in Jesus because if they think about God or they believe in Jesus, it will challenge all of their, their behaviors and their beliefs. And people cannot abide that. And yet onto the scene comes Jesus, who said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or again, later in John's gospel, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. And further on in John, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. While you have the light, believe in the light and become sons of the light. The tragedy is, of course, that many rebelled against this. Many rejected this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. There's the reality. And yet, to everyone who did receive him, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. The light shines. And no matter what the darkness tries to do, no no matter how much the darkness tries to envelop the minds of God's people and keep us in spiritual darkness, the light that is Christ shines on and is inextinguishable. 
There have been periods in the history of the world where there have been concerted efforts <clears throat> to destroy the light. The late 19th century, actually beginning right at the very beginning of the 19th century, with the French Revolution <clears throat> and uh, proceeding later with uh, movements within German theological scholarship was all an attempt to suppress the light that is Christ. In the 20th century, uh, Nazism, communism, under Stalin particularly in the Soviet Union, under Mao Zedong in uh, communist China, there were deliberate attempts to stamp out the light. And it has been inextinguishable. I remember uh, being, as a young man, still in my teens, going along to prayer meetings in Glasgow uh, that were run by the, uh, those who had been missionaries in mainland China before they'd been uh, sent home, uh, cast out of the country. And they had great concern, of course, for the people they'd left behind, those who'd come to Christ, those churches that, they'd, that had been formed. And uh, we were wondering what God's purpose was in all of this. That China had been probably the number one mission field in the minds of numbers of people over many years. Hudson Taylor, one of my heroes, uh, he, he became Chinese in order to win the Chinese for Christ. And he respected the culture and the language and the people. And here they were now on their own. And what we know is, of course, that on their own, the Chinese did not need missionaries. The Holy Spirit did not need to send outsiders. The Holy Spirit taught the people the things of God. John Sung and Watchman Nee and others shared the Word of God and taught the Word of God. And the most amazing growth, there were barely a million evangelical Christians when the missionaries left. And we don't know how many hundreds of millions there are today. The light is inextinguishable. Do your worst. And God will continue to use the light to bring men and women to the illumination which will find its ultimate expression when we look at the face of God. Where everything we need to know will be delivered to us firsthand in that moment of utter beatitude. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of the darkness, a darkness that can be felt, the darkness, Lord, that surrounds ideas and philosophies and movements and personalities, the darkness, Lord, that keeps us away from finding you, we thank that Christ has come. 
We thank you that he has come into the world as the light of the world. And that he's called us to kind of bask in the glory. Let the moon bask in the glory of the sun. We bask in the glory of the sun of righteousness and seek to be in our own way little lights that point to him, that remind the world of him who is the light. We pray for our friends and our colleagues, those who don't know you, those who are lost and in darkness still. We pray that you would, by your grace, open the eyes of their understanding that the light of truth may dawn upon them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.